All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, bringing you this show on the 19th day of September 2017. Before I talk more about today's show, let me remind you I am the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. You can subscribe to that by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or calling our office in New York City during the normal work hours at 718-457-1426. 718-457-1426. It is, in fact, a good time to be focused on the junior mining sector because the junior mining companies are those that find the metal in the ground and their shares usually do exceptionally well during gold bull markets. We are in a new secular gold bull market that I'm quite sure is true. Michael Oliver certainly confirms that with his work. Also like to encourage you to go to visit uh, Chen Lin's uh, newsletter. You might try that one out as well. It's chenpicks.com, chenpicks.com. Chen has done a, an exceptional job of investing his family's money, um, raising from something like $5,400 to $2.5 million over a 10-year period. He shares his ideas with his subscribers, chenpicks.com. I do want to thank each of you for listening to this show. Uh, also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are and Resources, Genesis Metals Corp, Klondike Gold, New Range Gold, Novo Resources, and Osprey Gold Development. I've titled today's show, Unlike Trump, JFK Didn't Bend a Knee. Jeff Dice, Daniel McAdams, and Jacob Hornberger return as guests this week, and we will listen to part of a speech by President Eisenhower, warning of how the military-industrial complex was setting up to destroy America, and another speech by President Kennedy, warning about government secrecy and the importance of the media to ferret out the truth and to bring it to the attention of the American voters. A former prosecuting attorney, Jacob Hornberger, who heads up the Future of Freedom Foundation, that's FFF.org, will comment on both the Eisenhower and Kennedy speeches and how both of those men warned us of the forces in play back then, which, if not abated, would destroy America freedom and liberty that our founding fathers gave us in the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. I believe when you listen to the speeches of both Kennedy and Eisenhower and the commentary that follows from Jacob Hornberger, you will realize that we Americans have, in fact, lost our birthright even if relative economic comforts resulting from past freedom seems to obscure the downward spiral our country is now facing. If Eisenhower were alive today, he would, no doubt, be able to say, See, I told you so. And if Kennedy were alive today, 
When fake news is the mainstream media serves to strengthen and support the military-industrial complex that both Eisenhower and Kennedy warned against, I think Kennedy would be appalled. Again, right after our first break, you will hear those very famous speeches by both Kennedy and Eisenhower, followed by a commentary by former trial attorney Jacob Hornberger. The reason why I titled today's show, Unlike Trump, JFK Didn't Bend a Knee, should be clear from Hornberger's comments as well as from the interview my friend Jeff Deist of the Mises Institute did with Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Donald Trump ran on a platform that was unfriendly to the military-industrial complex. His rhetoric would not have been different from what President Kennedy actually attempted to do behind the scenes to tame the military-industrial complex. But unfortunately, for the sake of truth, it seems as though President Trump has now apparently submitted his foreign policy to the wishes of the military-industrial complex, just like all presidents since Kennedy have. Normally on this show, we talk about what's happening in the markets and on our favorite stocks, but it's also important to make the connection between geopolitical forces and how they impact our markets. Keep in mind that a major turning point away from the intention of our founding fathers came when on August 15, 1971, President Nixon removed gold from the dollar and as a result from the international monetary system. That move not only led to irresponsible monetary policies on the part of the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world that have led to the depressed global economy that is now, that we're now facing and actually increasing the likelihood of war, but it also enabled endless dollar funding for the military-industrial complex and NATO, and it is that expansion, not Putin and China, that now threatens global war. But make no mistake, China and Russia are not willing to give up their national sovereignty just so Anglo-American empire and its military-industrial complex can take over their countries. Those nations quite naturally wish to retain their sovereignty, and so they are fighting back. They can't win with military might, but as James Rickards has discussed on this show, they can and are fighting back with economic tools at their disposal. And now I'm getting on to the topic that is very much related to the markets that we talk about every week on this show. Over the past number of years, the Chinese have amassed an enormous amount of gold, far more than we are told is the truth by our mainstream media. And they are by far the largest gold producer of any nation on the face of the earth, but they're not allowing one ounce of that gold to leave China. In Shanghai, the Chinese have now set up oil and gold markets, but not like the fraudulent paper markets in the United States and England. The Chinese are eliminating purchase of oil in dollars that are not backed by gold, but they will pay producers of oil in RMB, which is backed by gold. It doesn't mean that every transaction will be paid for in gold, but it does mean that if a seller of oil wishes to be paid in gold, the Chinese can deliver that gold as a payment to the seller of the oil. This, in fact, makes the RMB far more superior to the dollar, at least in, to the extent that the Chinese are willing to actually back the RMB with gold and deliver the gold upon the seller's request. Like so many very important events that are happening in the world these days, the mainstream media is not talking about China's move to dump dollars. But if you want to know why the dollar has started a bear market, this could be one of the major reasons. The major change should also, I might note, be very, very bullish for gold and other commodities, as Michael Oliver has quite well documented, have moved into a bull market as well. 
The future is unknowable, but it has been a contention of this show that it is better to know the truth because, as the good book says, the truth will set you free. I believe, as the Founding Fathers of America believed, you and I are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. More often than not, governments destroy those natural rights which are given to us by our Creator. But if you believe in Creator God as I do, then you know that while speaking the truth may cause some short-term danger and discomfort, in the longer run, though, and through eternity, the truth will most certainly set you free. But also knowing market forces that actually shape the markets, as opposed to what the propagandists tell you, can also set you free financially in the near term as well. We have to go to commercial break now, but when we come back, I will be talking with Jacob Hornberger after we listen to two important speeches by President Eisenhower and Kennedy. I'll be right back. Orin Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. New Range Gold Corps is a Canadian junior explorer focused on its recently acquired flagship Pamlico Gold Project, located in Nevada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Known as one of Nevada's highest-grade gold districts, Pamlico was held by private interests for most of its history and remains largely unexplored. Drilling by New Range is already confirming the legendary grades of the district with intercepts up to 341 grams gold per ton. Well-financed with no debt, New Range is unlocking shareholder value at Pamlico and trades under TSX, symbol NRG. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. He is the founder and president of the Future of Freedom Foundation. Jacob was born and raised in Laredo, Texas, and he received his bachelor's degree in economics from Virginia Military Institute, his law degree from the University of Texas, and he was a trial lawyer for 12 years in Texas. He also was an adjunct professor at the University of Dallas, where he taught law and economics. In 1987, Mr. Hornberger left the practice of law to become the director of programs at the Foundation for Economic Education. He has advanced freedom free markets on talk radio stations all across the country, as well as on Fox News with Neil Cavuto, Greta Van Susteren. He's appeared as a regular commentator also on Judge Napolitano's show, Freedom Watch. Uh, so really, more importantly, you can view his interviews at lourockwell.com. And I should mention also before we welcome Jacob that you should jot this 
website down. It's about as simple as it can be, fff.org. It stands for Future of Freedom Foundation, fff.org. It's a wonderful site I visited before I came on the show, and there's so much great material there. Welcome, Jacob. It's really good to have you with us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Jay. It's really a pleasure to have you with us, and I might mention in addition to your blog, you have so many great articles on your website. I mean, it's just this, if you are a lover of liberty and you believe in our Constitution and you feel passionately about uh, the things that Ron Paul talked about, uh, Jacob Hornberger is right there with Ron Paul uh, and other people that appear on this show regularly like Lou Rockwell and, uh, well, most of the guests that we have. So you really need to jot that down, fff.org. Well, maybe just take a, a quick second to tell us what is the goal then of Future of Freedom Foundation? What are you trying to do with your website? Well, we're, we're, we're an educational foundation, and our, our mission is to advance liberty by presenting an uncompromising case for the libertarian philosophy, uh, morally, philosophically, economically. And uh, so what we do is we take uh, libertarian principles and we apply them to the burning issues of the day, whether it's health care, education, economy, the national security state, foreign interventionism, and we show people what the moral case for liberty and limited government and why we're living in a society filled with chaos and violence and, and, and crises. That's because of this welfare warfare state that we've adopted. And so... We're, we're, we're kind of trying to show people you're not free, contrary to what they've taught you, and here's the way you can achieve freedom, and here's what a free society is all about. We have um, a couple of presidents in my lifetime that warned us about these dangers of losing our freedom and our liberties, and I'm speaking of Presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy. I want to play a couple of famous quotes from both of these presidents and get your response to what they had to say at that time. So I just want to get your feedback. Matt, can you play the first one that's from uh, President Eisenhower? Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Good evening, my fellow Americans. We now stand ten years past the midpoint of a century that has witnessed four major wars among great nations. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry 
can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. Well, there you have uh, President Eisenhower, a speech that he made just as he was leaving uh, the presidency. It was John Perkins who was on this show that said he thought it wasn't, uh, uh, it was not an accident that uh, President Eisenhower waited until he was ready to leave that he gave this speech. But I want to ask you, Jacob, what, what was Eisenhower right to be concerned about the unwarranted influence of the military-industrial complex? Absolutely. I mean, this is one of the most remarkable speeches that any president has ever given. And um, what he was saying was, look, this is a newfangled way of life for America, this giant standing military, uh, uh, military defense contractors, tons of people making money off this the military machine. And he was saying, this is new to the American experience. Now, notice how different that is from today, where everybody just assumes, because we've been born and raised under this kind of system, that it's just a necessary part of, of living in a free society. What he is saying is, this is a grave threat to a, to a free society. I mean, our, our founding fathers understood this. This is why they had an antipathy towards standing armies. And so what he's saying is, is that, Look how much care we have to take because of the threat that this giant military establishment has against a free society. And all this was justified, Jay, under the Cold War, the war that was being waged against America's World War II partner and ally, the Soviet Union. Notice that once that justification disappeared in 1989, the whole machinery, what we really know as the national security state, which is the military, the CIA, and the NSA, that didn't exactly disappear. And I think what we need to keep in mind from, from Eisenhower's warnings is that it continues to be the greatest threat to our freedoms today, much more so than the welfare state, in my opinion. Well, they've got us worried. They've got us scared. We've got to put up with the TSA and all this, uh, you know, armed guards uh, in our backyard with, with machine guns to keep us safe. That's the argument, and they've got us figured, they've got the vast majority of Americans thinking that uh, that it's better to give up your liberties than to be, I don't know, I mean, I don't see the danger, honestly, of course things can happen, but it seems to me it's uh, it's, it's a bit of manipulation for on somebody's part. Matt, can you play that speech by President Kennedy now? Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, 
or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. No president should fear public scrutiny of his program, for from that scrutiny comes understanding, and from that understanding comes support or opposition, and both are necessary. I am not asking your newspapers to support an administration, but I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people. For I have complete confidence in the response and dedication of our citizens whenever they are fully informed. I not only could not stifle controversy among your readers, I welcome it. This administration intends to be candid about its errors. For as a wise man once said, an error doesn't become a mistake until you refuse to correct it. We intend to accept full responsibility for our errors, and we expect you to point them out when we miss them. Without debate, without criticism, no administration and no country can succeed, and no republic can survive. That is why the Athenian lawmaker Sola decreed it a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. And that is why our press was protected by the First Amendment, the only business in America specifically protected by the Constitution, not primarily to amuse and entertain, not to emphasize the trivial and the sentimental, not to simply give the public what it wants, but to inform, to arouse, to reflect, to state our dangers and our opportunities, to indicate our crises and our choices, to lead, mold, educate, and sometimes even anger public opinion. This means greater coverage and analysis of international news, for it is no longer far away and foreign, but close at hand and local. It means greater attention to improved understanding of the news, as well as improved transmission. And it means, finally, that government at all levels must meet its obligation to provide you with the fullest possible information outside the narrowest limits of national security. And so it is to the printing press, to the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent.
Well, there you have a, a, a tremendous speech by President Kennedy, I think, and I, uh, he was really clearly understanding the need for free, uh, free speech and for a lack of censorship and for the avoidance of secret societies, the ability of rich and powerful people to, uh, to rule or to rule over us, essentially. Uh, Jacob, what, what are your thoughts after listening to that speech? Uh, look, what the, the information that has slowly leaked out through government documents, especially the Assassination Records Review Board, is and what we were never taught as children is that Kennedy was, went much further than Eisenhower in that, that farewell speech that you, you played earlier. Uh-huh. Kennedy was actually at war against the entire national security state apparatus at the time he was killed. He had, he had sworn to tear the CIA into a thousand pieces. He wasn't talking to his to the Joint Chief of Staff at all. He was moving America in an entirely different direction, uh, a direction that would end the Cold War. He, we, we've learned uh, many, many years later that he was involved in secret personal negotiations with, with Khrushchev to end the Cold War. So when you hear that speech, what I hear is he's opposing all the secrecy involved that comes with the national security state. He's saying mm-hmm. we cannot become totalitarian regimes in order to fight totalitarianism because then we destroy our own freedom. Exactly. And, and look at the secrecy of the NSA. I mean, they've been spying on everybody for years and years, and nobody knows about it. I think what Kennedy is saying is we want an independent press, an adversarial press. You need to ferret out these secrets of government, and you need to disclose them to the government. But more fundamentally, I'm, I'm thinking he's saying, we don't want this secrecy in this government. But he had it, and he knew it. I mean, you've seen what the CIA had already done with regime change operations in, in Iran, a, a coup there in 53, followed by Guatemala in Philly 54. Uh, you know, the, the whole idea is fear, like you alluded to earlier. That's the mm-hmm. point of the realm. Make people afraid of communism or terrorism or whatever that will cause them to surrender their freedom and keep it all secret. You know, national security. Oh, my gosh, we got to keep everything secret to keep you safe. And I think what Kennedy was saying, this is a bunch of bull. This is not consistent with a free society. And he was trying to move America into that realm of a free society, which means no national security state, no Cold War and all that other stuff. For sure. He was talking about the Soviet Union, uh, the way the Soviet Union was our enemies, uh, perceived enemies. Uh, but they were doing all the things that, in fact, the NSA is doing, in fact, our government is doing, infiltration, not invasion, subversion, not elections, intimidation instead of free choice, guerrillas by night rather than armies by day, preparations are concealed, not published, mistakes buried, not headlined, its dissenters are silenced, not praised. What do we just do with Snowden? We're... we're trying to silence him, right? No expenditure is questioned. I mean, my goodness, we don't, we, we daren't question our government's spend, spending of our resources. No rule is printed. No secret is revealed. You know, Jacob, it just seems to me that you're right. President Kennedy, the start of what we have today, it's no doubt grown dramatically from the Eisenhower-Kennedy days, right? Oh, tremendously. And and if you want, if you want to really amplify this for your listeners one of these days, Play them, I don't know if it's recorded, but I know it's written, uh, is his uh, peace speech at American University. It is the most remarkable speech you will ever read. This is where he proposed an, uh, a peaceful coexistence with the Soviet Union and an end of the Cold War. It's uh-huh. the most moving speech you will ever read or hear. 
Uh, well, you know, whatever so, might be said about Kennedy, there's no question but that his vision was get out of this anti-communism mode and this fear mode and crisis mode and national security mode and let's move America in a new direction. And that was very threatening to the national security establishment. I mean, imagine sitting at the CIA when your president is saying, hey, time to have more openness in government, no more secrets. Very threatening to these people. Yeah, in, indeed. Now, you know, we're almost out of time, and I, I apologize to you because I played this, took a lot of time playing these speeches, but I think they're so important. And, and in reading what you've, what you've written recently about President Kennedy and that disaster, you mentioned you saw a film that was based on Vincent Bugliosi's uh, book, and we've had him on our show not to talk about that, but some other issues. Talk to us a little bit about this, the Kennedy uh, assassination and why you are not drinking the Kool-Aid uh, that Mr. Bugliosi is offering up. Well, because as, as, as more and more information has come out, you know, they were, they were going to keep all these records secret for 75 years, which to me was bizarre because if it's a lone nut, why all the secrecy? Right. So there was, a, there was a lot of mystery from the very beginning. And as I and many other people have delved ourselves into what was happening, that what didn't tell us about, you know, JFK's war against the military, the CIA, and moving us in a new direction and so forth. It all of a sudden occurred to me that they needed to target the national security state as one of the possible people that had the motive to say, this man is a threat to our system, to our national security. And therefore, there should have been a targeted investigation. But that was never to happen because could you imagine people like you know, Chief Justice Warren accusing the CIA or the military of covering up or participating in this, this coup? which was really would have been just another regime change operation like all the others. And, and so that's where the assassination researchers had come out was first on the motive that, hey, if, if these guys really did this, you got to target them because nothing else is going to ferret out this crime. And as the evidence has come out, and if I've written on my website, everything leads into the direction that this was a national security state operation, uh, one which, which, in which Oswald wasn't the big communist they were, uh, they portrayed him as, but he actually was an intelligence agent that very well uh, may have been a patsy, a person that was framed mm-hmm. by those with whom he was working. And unfortunately, there's never been, been a targeted investigation, including the House Select Committee, the Warren Commission, and of course the AARB that said, let's really target this and check it out. Yeah, I, I, we just have a minute or two left, but I, I have to ask you, your essay that you wrote, the first step in the JFK cover-up, tell our listeners about that first step, and it had to do with the Texas law and uh, an autopsy. Talk to us about that and why it's so important. Yeah, an autopsy is absolutely key to ferreting out where the bullets came from when somebody's murdered and how a person dies and so forth. And so every indication was that Kennedy was shot from the front. Because you had doctors in Parkland that were saying he had a baseball-sized hole in the back of his head, which would reflect an exit wound. He had a little bullet hole in the front of his neck, which two doctors at a press conference said were entry wounds. Well, in order to disguise that, you need an you need a false autopsy. And so that very first step was that there was a team of Secret Service agents brandishing guns and threatening doctors in Parkland. Imagine, imagine. Threatening the people who just tried to save the life of the president to get that body out of Parkland. And, and the coroner there said, this is Texas law. Whenever there's a murder, I have to conduct an autopsy. It's got to be done here in Texas. Here you have federal law enforcement agents brandishing guns, forcing their way out of this in order to get the body onto the waiting plane where Johnson's waiting for it. 
Uh, imagine that. The President of the United States is waiting for this body, and, and then they take it up to Bethesda, um, Navy Medical Center, where all these shenanigans take place. And, and we've always been told, oh, well, these were bumbling pathologists and so forth. Mm-hmm. Every indication is there was no bumbling at all. They knew exactly what they were doing to disguise those shots that had been fired from the front and make them look like they'd all been fired from the back. Well, it, it's really alarming. I, I think it's alarming. I, I just though, recently read uh, something uh, on the Internet today. It says, uh, this came from the Huffington Post, belief in JFK assassination conspiracy is slipping, poll finds. I suppose it's the work of the Bugliosis of this world that uh, are, are partly responsible for that. But, you know, I, I, what one of the things that really stands out in my mind, we've had Russ Baker on this show, Family of Secrets, the author of that book. Uh, he pointed out that uh, Nixon was never able to get the CIA files on the Kennedy assassination. And it seemed to me that if the President of the United States is not privy to that kind of information, then uh, it seems to me he's not really the President of the United States. No, and they're still hiding them. I mean, this is what's so incredible. The CIA has some 1,100 records which total an estimated 30,000 to 60,000 pages, and they say that national security, whatever that means, will be jeopardized. Yeah. And, you know, Jay, they've always told us that, oh, well, you guys just can't accept that this little man killed a great man like the president. I look at it the other way because I can accept that John Hinckley, you know, shot at, at Reagan by himself or, yep. you know, that the, the guy that, ki- that killed John Lennon did it by himself. So that's a nonsensical argument. I think it's more like these people find it inconceivable that the national security state could do what they, they did in other countries that they could do it here in the name of uh, defending national security. Right. I think that's where the problem is. Is I call it the inconceivable doctrine, that they just yeah. believe it's inconceivable that this could happen in this country. It's nonsense. Of course it could happen. Right. And so it didn't happen. It's inconceivable, so it didn't happen. And I hear right. the same arguments about the Federal Reserve and about various other things as well. You know, Jacob, we're out of time. Um, so much more to talk to you about. I hope we can have you back again sometime. It's, uh, it's really great having you. So uh, thanks, thanks again. I would tell our listeners again, it's uh, fff.org. Go there. You want to read more about uh, what Jacob has written about the Kennedy assassination and lots of other topics as well. We just really uh, talked on one that I think is one of the most important I- uh, events of our time, Jacob, because uh, if what you're saying is correct, and I'm, I have a hunch you're right about the NSA, then it is extremely important to our future. And moreover, the whole notion that Kennedy understood that we are destroying ourselves from the inside out by turning ourselves into the exact enemies we're supposed to be fighting, in essence. So really uh, very, very um, important information. Thanks again for being with me, Jacob, and I look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, James. Well, folks, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because when we come back, Daniel McAdams and Jeff Deist will be with us. Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently upgrading and expanding on its resources to produce an economic study in Q3 2017, followed by construction in Q1 2018. Novo enjoys a strong balance sheet and supportive shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the symbols NVO and NSRP. RPF respectively. A gold rush has begun. 
Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon Territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to Mises Weekends. I'm pleased to be joined this week by an old friend, Daniel McAdams, someone with whom I worked in Ron Paul's office in the early 2000s. He is now head of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Unfortunately, due to this Hurricane Harvey, uh, which is hitting near where Daniel lives in South Texas, uh, we didn't get a good Skype connection, so we're going to do this via landline phone. So, Daniel, I, I appreciate you joining us today. Hey, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me back on Mises Weekend. Well... You know, foreign policy is in the news because of Trump's Afghanistan speech earlier this week. Uh, talk a little bit about that speech. Uh, you know, you had been uh, maybe a hopeful critic of Trump's foreign policy pronouncements when he was still a candidate. Uh, of course, he's reneged on some of those. Do you think that this speech represents some sort of turning point or inflection point where he is now entirely sort of co-opted into the into the D.C. neoconservative foreign policy mindset? I think with the speech, he is really in a trap. And I think he may actually even understand and realize that he's in a trap. I thought it was very interesting that he started his speech by saying, hey, you know, my inclination is to pull out. And of course, yeah. everyone knows that because he's been saying that for what, 10 or, or 12 years. There's even this great tweet from him in 2011 where he says, Ron Paul is right about Afghanistan. We should get out. You know, so I yeah. think he's almost kind of waving the white flag like I need some help, guys. I'm, I'm taking over. But um, but I don't think it's the neocons, really. I mean, I think it's uh, it's an over used term, but I would say it's the deep state. It's the military state. It's, uh, Jim Jatras called it military junta, which is probably pretty accurate. The neocons, they don't go all in for anything. They're on the sidelines cheering right now. Lindsey Graham is cheering on the sidelines. Yeah. But you better believe the moment things go sour, those cheers are going to turn into jeers. Well, it was interesting that he used that language, that his original instinct was to pull out. Uh, and it, it is entirely true uh, that I think neoconservatives have captured uh, b- both sides of the equation when it comes to foreign policy, but we, we thought perhaps they had not captured Donald Trump. Uh, you know, Murray Rothbard said, and I'm sure you remember this, he said famously that he thought war and peace was really the key 
to the whole libertarian business, as he put it. And if you'll recall, in the early 2000s, when Ron Paul and Lou Rockwell and some others were arguing against invading Iraq, all the organizations in D.C., left, right, center, even libertarian, were sitting on their hands. And now, uh, you know, fast forward to 2017 and look at this mess we've got, not only in Afghanistan, but also in Iraq. And it seems like the same voices uh, never have to say they're sorry. They never have to admit they were wrong. But yet they are shamefully allowed to come out and, and blast Ron Paul, uh, who was who right about all of this. I mean, can you imagine? I would hide my I would not only hide my face in shame. I think I would find a cave somewhere to live yeah. as a hermit in a contemplative life. These are the guys with blood with the blood of maybe a million uh, people on their hands. People like Bill Crystal, uh, John Potter, it's in these people. The, the wars that they bray for constantly uh, produce nothing but carnage and death. Yet, I mean, I'm constantly shocked that you find them on the television as experts. Every time you turn it on, they're just not only are they shameless, mm-hmm. but the TV stations, you know, what, what is wrong with these people? Well, to the extent there are some anti-war voices remaining, uh, apart from Ron Paul, let's talk about a couple of the bright spots in Congress Obviously, Thomas Massey and Walter Jones on the Republican side have been good uh, about this. Um, Tulsi Gabbard, who's a, a fairly new Democrat, not in her first term, has been a voice of sanity, a voice for the anti-war left to the extent such a thing still exists. Um, do you think uh, she will be silenced in the future? Do you think she'll be forced to moderate her, her stance? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, my mother-in-law lives in Hawaii, mm-hmm. interestingly enough. And she says there is a huge move there to unseat her. Uh, the, the famous Hawaiian left, the, the liberals in Hawaii, they don't like someone this radical. They're angry that she actually went to Syria. Uh, and not only on, not on one of these congressional junkets, you know, but she actually went there. She went and met with all sides and she came back and said, there are no moderates in Syria. Wow. Uh, the opposition we support are a bunch of terrorists. Uh, so she actually did what she was supposed to do. And, uh, of course, that infuriates the Democratic Party and, of course, Republicans as well. So I think she could actually face a well-funded primary next time around. Well, that's too bad. It, it, and it's it's too bad that there is no real anti-war left. We saw how, for instance, Jim Webb was treated during his primary against Hillary. He really got zero traction. And, and it seems uh, as though both parties have been in entirely co-opted when it comes to foreign policy. So the question becomes, what do we do about it? What is what is the way to break this stranglehold? Is it non-political? Yeah, you know, speaking of, of, of Webb, you, you brought it up. I, I've always had a soft spot for Jim Webb. I think he was the last person I ever voted for <laughs> way back when. But even he triangulated in a way. He was trying to sound a little more hawkish when he ran, kind of a Me Too thing. And I always thought he would have gotten more traction if he had really come out as a blue-collar, anti-war, or conservative Democrat, you know, so yeah. what, a, what a tragedy uh, you know, on that front. I mean, such a great writer and such yeah. an interesting person. But um, the bright spots, I think, are still out there. And the Mises Institute is reaching out to them all the time. You know, we had this great conference that we did together in April down here in Texas that was, you know, a full house. And people came from, from all over the country. I think even overseas they came. So I think it's there. People are looking for ways to get together and share ideas. They don't have a figurehead right now. You know, when Ron was running, we remember he was able to catalyze uh, all of that energy and 
bring it together in a big movement. And, and it's harder when you don't have a campaign going, when you don't have a candidate going uh, to to retain that kind of energy. And I think that's the challenge that all of our you know organizations that honestly are striving for a broad anti-war movement, uh, we have to face, we have to be creative. Well, to the extent Rand Paul is thinking about running again in 2020, why don't we suggest to him, <laughs> get out of the Middle East. Sounds like a pretty good campaign plank. Um, you know, you mentioned Tulsi Gabbard's trip to Syria, which was considered uh, heresy, no doubt, by some people. Uh, we don't hear as much about Syria the last few months. Uh, what's going on there? Did, did, talk about whether the U.S. actually has boots on the ground and whether we are still uh, ob- obsessed with removing Assad regardless of the consequences. Well, I think certainly they would like to. They, the, the interventionists never want to admit defeat, even if it uh, drags us all down with them. Uh, but I think essentially in this, uh, I think a Russian general said this a couple of days ago, the war is de facto over. The really the last pockets of ISIS and al-Qaeda control in the center of Syria uh, are being flushed out. And there really aren't any strong points. The the Syrian army is, is really uh, steaming toward uh, Deir al-Zur, which is really one of the last strongholds. Uh, in Raqqa, which was their capital, uh, the U.S. is still bombing and it's, it's killing an awful lot of civilians. I think a couple of days ago, they killed 100. But essentially, the war is over. Your first part of your question was important, though. There are boots on the ground. Uh, our current Kurdish allies uh, in Syria said the U.S. will stay here militarily for decades. Hmm. I, w- I wonder about that. That would mean um, challenging a victorious Assad uh, for his territorial sovereignty. Does the U.S. have the stomach for it? It's a good question. Well, is Syria going to become another Afghanistan? Are we going to be talking about it in 10 years, 15 years? Are we going to have at least a limited military presence slash occupation there uh, like we still do in Korea? I mean, are, are, is, is the American public even thinking? about about these kinds of things. I have, I will say I have seen some editorial cartoons lately joking about sons um, patrolling the same parts of Afghanistan that their fathers patrolled. So I guess that's a bright spot of sorts. Yeah, I think that was an Onion article. Someone sent it to me. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's almost not funny anymore because it's so true. It's hard to do humor these days. But I, I think uh, Syria is different than Afghanistan simply because of the, the Russian and Iranian Activity. I mean, the Russians and the Iranians pulled uh, Assad's chestnuts out of the fire, and in a sense, it's uh, you know, it's a it's a heresy to say this, but they did us all a favor because that place was about to be overtaken by people that were supposed to view as enemies. You know, ISIS, Al Qaeda, people that chopped the heads off of young boys, which we saw. These are the people that are being defeated with the help of of Russia and Iran. And, uh, you know, they've essentially done humanity and decency and civility a favor by doing it. But the fact that they have expended so much blood and treasure, to use a cliche term, to save Assad, are they going to go ahead and turn around and allow the U.S. to come in and break the place up again? Uh, You know, that's a big question. You know, talking about Syria, talking about Afghanistan, talking about Iraq, you know, outside of Washington, D.C., there is almost zero constituency in the United States for continuing, perpetuating, intensifying any of these conflicts. And there's a huge constituency for ending them. Uh, but it's interesting to me, and I'd like to get your comment on this, that all of our democratic processes, voting for president, voting for members of Congress, not only does it fail to produce good outcomes, i.e. anti-war, non-interventionist policy, it doesn't even create majority outcomes. I mean, here we are. There's no natural constituencies for these wars, especially amongst military families and the soldiers themselves, I might add. But yet they go on and on and on. So so what's the constituency and 
how is democracy working here? It's not. It's not working very well. But, you know, democracy presupposes an informed voter, uh, an informed participant, uh, someone with, uh, <laughs> with, 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 with a good heart, with a decent heart. And unfortunately, we don't have that. I don't need to tell you, Jeff, about the school system. I don't need to tell you what a $100,000 college education is, is producing. You know, the, the, half of this country is littered with statues <laughs> on the ground. Uh, that our wonderful uh, college students have have taken care of. Uh, uh, we don't have an informed constituency. We have a con- we have a constituency that is so easily malleable. Mm-hmm. Uh, the propaganda is so strong. Look, it was just a couple of weeks ago. We were all diving under our desks, waiting for the North Korean bomb. You know, this is a conflict that's gone on for what seventy years, uh, and and they can ratchet it up whenever they wish. So, you know, propaganda is is very, very strong and very, very effective, even with the rise of alternative media, which, by the way, is in the process of being censored. Well, it's interesting to note that back when Ron Paul in Congress was warning about Iraq at the time, the U.S. federal debt was about six trillion dollars. Now it's about 19 trillion dollars. So it's interesting that our friends on the left don't squawk more about this and say, you know, you you talk about single payer health care. You talk about money for schools you talk about money for anything. Um, right there, we're talking about the $13 trillion odd dollars in debt, not all from the wars, but those wars have, have played a huge role in that. And it doesn't seem like we talk about this. It, it seems like war finance is never discussed in, in the American media. Well, that's absolutely true. And, you know, that's, that's why, I mean, I would like to make an economic argument, especially to the middle class and working class. You know, it's, it's sometimes the moral argument can be too difficult to bear. And an economic argument hitting someone uh, literally in the stomach, I would like to think is successful. But you're right, the costs of war are so hidden, no one has felt it, except, and as you suggested earlier in your question, except those families in places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, mm-hmm. uh, which were disproportionately affected by the war. And guess what? They all voted Trump because they liked him saying, why are we in NATO? Why are we messing with the Russians? Why don't we get out of Afghanistan? They liked that because they're the ones that have suffered. And now, unfortunately, they're the ones being let down, at least, at least for the present. Well, what's frightening to me is we have no idea what the future VA costs are going to be for all of these 20-somethings we have coming home with missing limbs, with PTSD, with all kinds of mental health problems, with suicide issues, uh, it's going to be staggering because this is a good thing, but it it costs a lot of money. We have a lot of battlefield medicine today that can keep uh, uh, combat injured people alive in ways that perhaps we couldn't during World War II. So they come back, they're young, uh, perhaps unable to work, and they're going to cost us a lot of money in terms of VA coverage in the future. But you've talked in the past about the hidden defense budget, uh, and you've argued that when you factor in a a lot of the foreign aid, a lot of the State Department spending, that that DOD expenditures are really more like a trillion dollars a year, which would put them on par with Social Security and Medicare and the federal budget. So talk a little bit about the hidden military spending. Yeah, and these are all, you know, you're right, military spending. It's not even DOD. It extends everywhere. Department of Energy, Department of Homeland Security, mm-hmm. all of these things. The militarization of the police costs money. That's money that was uh, appropriated, uh, you know, ostensibly for the defense of this country. And it's going to make your local policeman have a, a tank, of all things. <laughs> uh, but there are so many hidden costs. Uh, the militarization of everything 
everything uh, across the board. The VA costs, as you point out, have skyrocketed. Um, and when you factor it all, the NSA, the CIA, we don't even know how much they spend. That has to be uh, that has to be factored in as a military cost. So you know we, we've become a, a completely militarized society, all the way down to our NFL games. It's something that's, that's going into our DNA, and that's why it makes it so very difficult to resist. And as we said in you know in the last question, the, the ability to hide the effect, to hide the fact that the dollar is being destroyed by this, um, to this point is keeping people from turning against the war. Who knows though? Maybe maybe the deep state when it gets frustrated with Trump, they'll just let it all hang out and people will finally realize that their dollar is worth nothing anymore and they'll let the whole thing collapse on his watch. Well, at some point, I, I certainly believe that the foreign buyers of our treasury debt will, will end this game of musical chairs and, and realize that we are never going to get either our foreign policy or our fiscal houses in order. Uh, th- that said, Ron Paul Institute has an upcoming conference in Washington, D.C. in September. I want to talk about that a little bit. I, I noticed that Julian Assange is going to attend at least via Skype, which is fantastic. He's obviously a big name that our listeners will know. Talk about some of the other names. I particularly am a huge fan of Lewis Fisher. Oh, yeah. Uh, for people who don't know him, he worked for years at CRS, Congressional Research Service, and he's an absolute expert on uh, executive powers and how they've been, um, how they've consumed the presidency in the 20th century and allowed presidents to go to war with, with uh, this feckless Congress, uh, n- not asserting its own constitutional prerogatives. So talk about a little bit about Lou Fisher and some of the other guests, if you would. Sure. You know, and, and neither of us are fans of government, but um, Lou Fisher is someone that, uh, you know, in a perfect world, that's what government would be like. You know, he was an mm-hmm. absolutely objective analyst, Dorian, legal scholar, uh, whenever we had a question. And I know for a fact that it wasn't just Republican offices, Democrat offices, everyone. When you had a question about these issues, you'd go to Lou Fisher, soft-spoken guy, very bookish. This guy's written 30 books. Hmm. You know, he had a full career. He worked full-time. He didn't come home and, you know, guzzle a six-pack. Uh, he came home and wrote and wrote a book. You know, he's just got another one out about the Supreme Court. You know, just brilliant. And we're going to, Lou is Lou Fisher is going to open our uh, roundtable discussion on how Congress works, how it doesn't work, and that'll be with some some former Ron Paul staffers. Adam Dick, our senior fellow, is going to MC that. Uh, but there are a lot of, of other greats. In fact, I've just had to extend the time because there's just too much to fit in. Uh, but we've got Mises Institute founder Lou Rockwell, the inspiration in so many ways for the Ron Paul Institute is going to give a talk. We're so grateful uh, to him for coming to D.C., which is not his favorite place, as you know, Jeff. Sure, and uh, and I'm super excited that that Ron Paul is is going to uh, do the keynote speech and introduce his new book, uh, The Revolution at Ten Years, which we've just finished publishing at the Ron Paul Institute, and it is really an inspirational and interesting book. So we're going to have some uh, some books there as well for people to get, and he's going to talk a little bit about it. Uh, but it goes on and on. We have a whistleblowers roundtable. In addition to Julian Assange, we have. Five really important whistleblowers, you know, John Kiriakou, who blew the whistle on torture and they threw him in jail for it, uh, you know, the CIA. So uh, Peter Van Buren, who many people know, Phil Giraldi, people read his stuff, uh, Jesslyn Raddick uh, and Thomas Drake, you know, a great panel. Scott Ritter, here's the guy who got Iraq right. He said, look, Saddam does not have weapons of mass destruction. They ridiculed him. They destroyed him, literally. Uh, and he was the one that's exonerated by history. And uh, he's been writing some terrific pieces lately for the American conservative. So we're so happy that he's going to come down. This guy, Marine intelligence officer, hard-hitting, you know, uh, guy, great speaker. So we're thrilled to have him. Jacob Hornberger, you know, a real inspiration, you know, really the libertarian's libertarian. 
uh, is, is, is going to be with us as well. So it's a jam-packed thing. I mean, I, I, if, if I wasn't putting it on, I'd be buying tickets, to be honest. <laughs> I'm not trying to sound like P.T. Barnum here, but uh, but I just, I love putting something, I'm sure you feel the same way that you would like to attend. And so that's, that's how I feel about it. Well, if you're in the D.C. area or within driving or train distance, please check it out. Uh, if you want to know about a real foreign policy, a peace and non-intervention, or a foreign policy that actually would strengthen America, uh, not only in terms of making us safer, but also making us less indebted. You got to check out Ron Paul Institute, uh, find them online, find them via Facebook, via Twitter, and uh, Daniel and Dr. Paul are, are doing good work there uh, against uh, wildly overfunded neoconservative uh, enterprises of all stripes. So, Daniel, thanks so much for your time. I hope your conference is a tremendous success, and ladies and gentlemen, have a great weekend. Well, there you have it. If you've listened to the discussion we just played uh, between Jeff Dice and Daniel McAdams, as well as the discussion earlier with Jacob Hornberger, it should be very clear that the liberties and prosperity that we have enjoyed here in America for many years is not being defended, but actually destroyed by the military-industrial complex. It is clear from what Daniel and Jeff just said that Donald Trump has, in fact, buckled under to the powers of the neocons in the military-industrial complex, or deep state, as some call it, just as all presidents since Kennedy have. As we noted previously on this show, and as documented by Russ Baker in his book Family of Secrets, the CIA would not grant President Nixon's request for the CIA's report on the Kennedy assassination. Where are the mainstream journalists who President Kennedy appealed to? to speak the truth to the American people about what is really going on in their government. You may want to listen to Kennedy's speech once again. It should be clear from the fact that Kennedy was killed and that the CIA would never grant information to President Nixon about the assassination and that Donald Trump has so soon reneged on his campaign promises as pressure was put on him from all angles that the President of the United States is not, in fact, the President. He is not, in fact, the Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces. There is a much darker and deeper force at work here. These are not pleasant topics to be sure, but as always I believe that knowing the truth will set you free. Knowing why we spend trillions of dollars to go to war against countries that are no threat to our sovereignty can be helpful, if you know that, in realizing that America is on a course of action that is beyond its control and as such endless amounts of dollars will need to be printed to pay for those actions, which most certainly dictates one course of action on your part. You must trade those dollars that you manage to save, trade them for durable monetary assets like gold and silver, and to the extent needed other tangible assets that will retain their value when the dollar, like all other fiat currencies before it, head for the dustbin of history. Of course, God is ultimately in control of the fate of nations, but for us mere mortals we can only put our trust in our Creator and then do the best we can to understand the realities of the four dimensions of time and space in which we dwell. Well, that's all for this week. Next week, Richard Mayberry is scheduled to be with me, and uh, I will also uh, be talking to uh, RN Resources. I think Ivan Bebek, uh, one of the most, one of my favorite companies. So I hope that you'll tune in next week. Uh, also, hopefully, uh, Michael Oliver will be with us. Well, until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 